if you do need notes, uh, you'll find the notes in the back <clears throat> at the entrances. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Ahab. But before that, we're going to be talking about uh, a great movie that came out in 1972 by the name of Godfather. Some of you have probably seen that movie. Paramount Pictures actually purchased the rights to The Godfather for $80,000. thought this was very interesting. Before it had gained a lot of popularity. Uh, Eventually, it would go on to be the highest grossing movie of 1972. um, And would even hold the title of the highest grossing movie of all time uh, for a little while. Uh, It actually grossed at the box office between $246 and $287 million. And if you think about that being in 1972, that's a lot of millions. And The Godfather, while it is a fictional movie, it is about something that was very true uh, in the 40s and 50s, even before that, which was the mafia. Uh, Very intriguing. Uh, very mysterious um, to see some people and families that would hold such great power and such great influence <clears throat> and a small glimpse into these movies, it makes you feel like maybe you are a little bit a part of the story. And so you see this uh, mafia movie that is made and it was a worldwide hit. It was a, it was a, a lot of people enjoyed it as so much that they made two other uh, movies after the fact. But in the middle of that intrigue of the mafia, if you really take a step back and you look at it for what it really is, you will see that it's a movie about villains. It's a movie about corrupt uh, people who did very corrupt things. And it's kind of funny that when you are watching The Godfather, if you've never seen it before, you almost feel like, okay, this is the good mafia family and they're against the bad mafia families. And you're almost cheering for them to do well in the movie. And and how in the world, you step back and think about it, do you find yourself cheering for someone involved in crime and who's a murderer? You're like, well, there you go. So... The story that we're looking at tonight from God's Word is a good old-fashioned mob story. And it centers around a very evil couple by the name of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And we're going to see that power and greed are at the very center of this story. And when you see power and when you see greed and they come together, it often is a very bad combination and things aren't going to go well uh, for this couple. So let's see how we got to Ahab. First of all, kind of where we got to in the Kings. First, we started off with Moses as he led God's people out of Egypt. And um, Moses, while he was not a king, he acted very much like a king. And y'all are going to hear us say that every week. Um, Moses, he leads them to, to the edge of the promised land uh, through some, un, uncircum, some, some very bad circumstances in his life. God says, you can't go in. Joshua is going to lead my people. So Joshua leads the people into Israel. Joshua is the uh, conquering military leader that uh, wipes a lot of the people out in the, in the land. He's also the man who's in charge of dividing up the territories of all the tribes of Israel. Uh, 
Uh, and then that will lead us into the time of the judges. The judges were very uh, centralized people who... Uh, and if you look at the judges, they can't really, you can't really look at them in a, in a good light because they were uh, very warped at best in, in their leadership. And we see that we, that leads us to the last judge, which was Samuel. And Samuel uh, leads us into a time where we have the triune uh, kingship, Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, Saul being probably a very bad king for the nation, which led to David, a man after God's own heart. But we know if you were here for the series through David, uh, David had his ups, David has, had his downs, uh, he had his good times, he had his bad moments, but David uh, was a king after God's own heart. Which leads us to Solomon. And Solomon's reign started off very good, very powerful, and we see that through the influence of his Pagan wives, uh, he, they turned his heart away from uh, Yahweh and to idol worship and to the worship of other, other gods. And that leads, at the end of Solomon's life, into a civil war in the nation. And you have the southern tribe of Judah, the northern tribe of Israel, Rehoboam being the king in Judah, Jeroboam being the king in Israel. And from there it kind of branches out into many other kings. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 16. And I kind of want you to stay there because we're going to read a lot of verses from chapter 16 to chapter 23. Uh, we're going to be skipping around a little bit, so just kind of keep your place there in 1 Kings. Uh, a little bit about Ahab. Ahab's father was King Omri. He reigned 22 years and followed in the sins of his father Jeroboam. There, there are several kings in between Jeroboam and Ahab. Uh, one of the most interesting things that happens, and I just like to mention this because it's kind of a cool little... When you think about, when I start with the mob story, this is kind of a mob start startup for uh, King Ahab. Um, you have a man by the name of Zimri who kills the king at the time, King Elah, and he takes over in his place. And the people, they hear what Zimri did, and they make Omri, who is Ahab's father, the commander over the Omri's, over the armies, Omri. And then uh, King Zimri, who had reigned for seven whole days, he looks outside one day, and there sits Omri, and he he says, this is not a good situation. So in essence, he commits suicide. He burns his house down around him and he commits suicide. And in that time, there was two houses that kind of emerged. House of Tibni, a house of Omri, kind of both in control. Uh, Tibni reigns for about two years uh, and dies. And then Omri uh, is set up as king over Israel. And so Omri is the king uh, before Ahab. Ahab is his son. Uh, Ahab, uh, this is from 1 Kings 16.30. This is your next blank. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. I want you to continue reading in verse 31. And, is, and as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. I want you to just wrap your mind around that statement. As if it weren't that big of a deal to walk in the sins 
of Jeroboam. You know, if any time you consider your sins a light deal, uh, you know, the sins of my fathers, my forefathers, it's going to seem like a cakewalk compared to how I'm going to live. Uh, You're walking a very dangerous path, and we're going to see that dangerous path tonight. Let's continue reading. Verse 31, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So not only was Ahab bad, but then he marries Jezebel. So who's Jezebel? Ahab's wife was Jezebel. And it says she was a foreign wife whose name meant chaste or ridicule of purity. Uh, There was a whole lot of different meanings that a lot of other um, people gave for the meaning of Jezebel. All of them were bad. That's about as PG as it got right there. Uh, And you could do an entire sermon series over Jezebel alone. I know I could definitely spend an entire Wednesday not talking about her, but this was about Ahab, so let's move on. One thing I want us to do tonight, and I I don't want you to miss this, is I don't want you to miss God's grace and God's mercy that he continues to show Ahab all the way through his life. If there's one thing that we're going to key in on tonight is how God continued to reveal himself to Ahab. Ahab had a choice whether he would listen or whether he would ignore. But Ahab over and over and over is going to get uh, these moments in his life where God was trying to get his attention. Where God was showing him who he really was. Not he, Ahab, but he, God. He was trying to show him who he was. And so we're going to look at Ahab's life and we're going to look at how God is going to reveal himself to Ahab And how he responds to those. So attention getter number one was a drought. We're going to see how Elijah is sent to deliver some bad news to the king. Chapter 17. Let's read in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite um, of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab. As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You know, Ahab was a worshiper of Baal. He promoted it in the kingdom. I think Landon showed us this picture a few weeks back of this Baal statue. The people would worship Baal because they thought that he would bring rain. He would bring healing to the land. He would bring nourishment for the land. They needed the rain much like we do in Odessa. And so that's what they prayed about. And they said, we want him to bring rain, so we're going to offer sacrifices to Baal. We're going to worship Baal. So Elijah Elijah shows up, and he says, I'm going to show you who the real God of the rain is. And until I say so, it's not going to rain in the land. It's not going to rain in the land for many years until I say so. And so that way I can prove to you that God, Yahweh, is the God of the rain. Uh, Let's look at chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go 
show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe, excuse me, in Samaria. Skip down to verse 17. When Ahab, excuse me, when Ahab had sought, when he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? So immediately we see Ahab playing the blame game. Not only did Elijah tell him uh, over three, two years prior, I'm going to make it stop raining. And here we have this moment where there's a famine. There's been no rain. He knows why there's no rain. Elijah told him why there's no rain. And yet what he has to say is, you troubler of Israel. In essence, what he's saying is, this is all your fault. This isn't my fault. This is your fault that this has happened. Um, you troubler of, Is, uh, of Israel. And he's playing the, the blame game towards Elijah. <clears throat> Check out this picture. Uh, I hate even looking at this picture. Um, this is the worst feeling in the world. When this comes on in your car, you get that sick feeling in your stomach, right? It's your check engine light. Now, at this moment, when you see this come on in your car, you have two choices. You can, one, take out a piece of tape, cover it up, ignore it, pretend it's not there. Maybe it'll go away, right? Uh, Or two, you can go to the prophet Alan Ruley, and he can check out and see what's wrong with your car. Now, here's the truth. Even if this light comes on in my truck and I go to see Alan, I do not want to hear what he has to tell me. I know there's something wrong. Really, what we want to know is what's the damage? What's it going to set me back, right? That's what we really want to know. What's going on with my car? How can you fix it? But we have a choice. In the same way when Elijah and Ahab have this moment, Ahab has a choice. He has a choice on how he's going to respond to what God is having to say. Verse 18. And he, Elijah to Ahab, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commands, the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Elijah tells him, because you have turned away from Yahweh, because you are worshiping the Baals, because you are abandoning the commandments that God has set before you, that's why this famine is upon the, upon the land. So number one, drought. Number two, let's look at the showdown. And of course, you can't have a story about Ahab without talking about the uh, showdown on Mount Carmel. Ahab versus Elijah, the prophets of Baal versus um, Jehovah. And so verse, uh, chapter, verse 19 and chapter 18 says, Now therefore, spend, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Think about that for a second. 850 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of um, Asherah. And they're going to come. They eat at Jezebel's table. They're probably housing them. They're feeding them. Um, This has to cost a ton, especially in the middle of a famine. And they're going to have this showdown. And you know the story. 
Elijah gets them up on the top of Mount Carmel and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an altar. I want you to take this bull. I want you to prepare it uh, ready for sacrifice. And you're going to cry out to Baal and he's going to send fire and consume this sacrifice. And so we see them start chanting and nothing happens. Um, They start singing. Nothing happens. They start chanting louder. Nothing happens. They scream. Nothing happens. They dance. Nothing happens. They start cutting themselves, it says, until their their blood is starting to flow. Nothing happens. And then Elijah gets in on the fun, right? One of my favorite stories growing up in, in, in student ministry was... Uh, Elijah making fun of the prophets of Baal. You know, maybe your God's taking a nap. Maybe you need to chant louder. Maybe he's on a trip and he's far away. You need to chant louder. Maybe he's relieving himself and you need to chant louder, right? And he makes jokes. Nothing happens. And then we see Elijah. He builds an altar. He prepares a sacrifice. And... Not only does he prepare sacrifice, remember that we're in the middle of a drought, but he asked them to go and gather water and pour it on the sacrifice and do it again and pour it on the sacrifice. So much so that there is water standing in the trench around the altar. And so when that happens, Elijah cries out to God, 37, verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that they have turned their hearts back and that you have turned their hearts back. And of course, we know that God sends the fire. He consumes the sacrifice. He consumes the altar. He dries up all the water in the trench. What must have been an amazing light show. It's amazing when God wants to get our attention. Because that's his, attention. that's his goal in this moment. Yeah, he knows that Elijah is faithful to him and he wants to show him that. Yes, he wants to show the prophets of Baal and Asherah that he is God. But he wants to turn the hearts of the people back to him. But you know who else was standing there? Ahab. And he had a choice. He saw what his prophets could do. He saw what Yahweh could do. And he has a choice in this moment. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Says Elijah then gathers up the prophets of Baal and he uh, kills them. And uh, we know that Jezebel is not going to be happy about this moment. And she decides to hunt down Elijah. We can talk about that story another time. But God in this moment, He's still trying to get The attention of Ahab. Let's look at attention getter number three. Victory number one. We're going to see Ahab defeat Ben-Hadad. 1 Kings chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him. And horses and chariots. And he went up. And closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Now you can see this map up on the screen about where this takes place. Uh, They come down from Syria and they're going to kind of surround uh, the city. And they close in on Samaria. 
And there's 32 kings along with Ben-Hadad. And so there's this massive army around them. And if you really think about it, Ahab's in big trouble. He doesn't have this big of an army. And so verse 5, these messengers came again. And they say, thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. And they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So Ahab's in trouble. First they come to him and they say, we're going to take all your silver and gold, your wives and your children. And Ahab at first is kind of like, okay, that's all right. But then they come back and they say, well, we're not only going to take those things, but we're also going to send people to just raid your houses and take whatever they please. And he's going to come back to them and say, "Uh, I can't do this. This is more than I want to pay. So the messengers go back to Ben-Hadad and they say, Ahab pretty much says, no, you can't have it. And this king is furious. And Ben-Hadad replies, verse 10, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Not only am I going to wipe you out, but I'm going to destroy everything that you have so much so, and our people are just going to carry away the dust. There's going to be no remains of you. I'm going to wipe you out completely. And then Ahab is going to continue with his smack talking. Verse 11, tell him, excuse me, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. You know, this is like a junior high JV team talking smack to the high school varsity team. This is not a situation where you need to be uh, talking smack, right? Meanwhile, let's see what happens. Verse 13, a prophet shows up. God's trying to get his attention. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then Ahab has the audacity. All right, right, so you're telling me I'm going to have victory over these people. Um, Who has to take the first step? Verse 21, he tells him, you will. Let's see what happens. Verse 21, the king of Israel went out, struck the horses and the chariots, struck the Syrians with a great blow. Wow, you're outnumbered, their army's bigger than yours, and yet you have the victory. And the prophet tells him, God will give you the victory because God wants to show you who he truly is. Again, what's going to happen? Attention getter number four. Let's put victory number two. Because Ben-Hadad is not finished. Uh, He is in defeat, but he is going to come back. And he is not going to take this loss lightly. He's upset. So the next spring, he goes back to war. In verse 26, In the spring, Ben-Hadad musters the Syrians and went to fight Aphek. To fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. 
but the Syrians filled the country. Now imagine the scene. You're on a hillside. You have two little armies that look like two little flocks of goats. And then you have this massive army covering the countryside. Sounds like it's worse, right? Um, This is like the peewee football team talking smack to the varsity football team. Enter prophet of God stage right. Verse 28. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord. Because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. Benadad is foolish enough to think, you know what, last time we lost the battle because we fought it in the hills. We're going to fight in the valley. Their God may be the God of the hills, but this is the valley. And we have this. And the, and the prophet tells him. He thinks that he has. I'm going to show Ben-Hadad that not only am I the God of the hills, but I'm the God of the valley. And so that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, here's the map where they go up uh, and fight there in that situation. It says, verse 29, And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered the inner chamber uh, in the city. You know, all is going really well for Ahab. Think about what he's seen, what he saw on Mount Carmel, the things that he's experienced. He had an overwhelming victory in the first uh, battle with Ben-Hadad. The next battle with Ben-Hadad, he's going to have an even more amazing victory. And... Surely, this would get his attention. Surely, these moments, Ahab would see God for who he really was. Verse 34, Ahab said this to Benadad. I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and he let him go. Benadad comes out. He's a defeated king. You know what happens to defeated kings with God's people? You don't let them live. You see a whole story uh, with, with Samuel and how there's a king that's about to be let go. And, and Samuel's like, this isn't going to happen. And he hacks him up. Here we see Ahab and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to let you go. He's a defeated king. He makes a treaty with him. And if you continue reading, this is not how it should have gone. This is not what God wanted him to do. Which leads us to attention getter number five. Which is bad news. Ahab's greedy downfall. First Kings chapter 21, we have a story of Naboth. Uh, Naboth had a vineyard. And Ahab is looking out his window one day and he thinks to himself, man, that vineyard is nice. It's right outside my window. I really need that for my garden. Wouldn't it be nice that instead of seeing this vineyard, I could look out and I could have my fruits and my vegetables being grown out there. So 
Ahab is going to approach Naboth and he's going to say, I want to buy this land from you. Naboth is going to refuse. He's going to explain to him that I can't sell you this land because this land has been in my family for a long time. It's against the rules to sell this land to you. And Ahab is going to be furious. As a matter of fact, he's going to go into his house and he's going to throw a fit. Much like your, the children, that the fit your children would throw if you tell them what kind of cereal they can't have while you're on the cereal aisle, right? I know parents avoid the cereal aisle at HEB and because they don't want to see the, the fit that their child will throw. Ahab is throwing a fit. So much so that Jezebel shows up and she starts asking, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you not eating? Why are you throwing a pity party? 1 Kings 21, starting in verse 6. And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise. Eat some bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And as we talked about earlier, Jezebel is about to make Naboth an offer that he can't refuse. Jezebel's going to set him up, much like a mafia family would. She comes up with a very wicked plan to give Naboth a place of honor. She's going to give Naboth, she's going to proclaim a fast in his honor over the nation. And then she's going to come up with two guys who will lie about Naboth. And she sets him at the seat and they start having conversations. And these two men say, hey, Naboth just cursed God and he cursed the king. So what happens? They take Naboth out and they stone him. They kill him. And scripture tells us that dogs actually will come out and lick up his blood. Verse 16. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. This is about as brutal as it gets. No, he was not the one to stone him. No, he didn't come up with this wicked scheme. But he allows it to take place. And then when he finds out he's dead, huh, no big deal. He strolls to the vineyard to take ownership of it. No remorse, no regret. I want you to just stop for a minute and think about the things that Ahab has seen. The victories that God has given him. Fire falling down to consume uh, the sacrifice. All of these things Ahab firsthand have seen and over and over the prophet said, God is giving you victory to show you that he is God. And now you're just going to stroll into the garden like it's no big deal. Let's see what unfolds. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. Verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? 
You know, it's true. Oftentimes when we come face to face with truth, especially when we know we're in the wrong, it's the last thing that we want to hear. It's the very last thing that we want to hear. We do not like to be told that we're wrong by someone, even if we're wrong. We've all been there, right? When we come face to face with truth, we feel like whoever is delivering that truth to us, they're the enemy. And much like I said, <clears throat> I said earlier, it's easier to just put tape over the check engine light and ignore it and pray that it will just go away. Ignore the real problem. Verse 20. Elijah's going to answer him. <clears throat> I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut you off from Ahab, from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. We can't miss this. When we sin in our lives, we are foolish if we think that our sin only affects us. It affects everyone around us. It affects our family. It can infect our church. Maybe your business. We are foolish if we think that our sin only is right here with me and God. It does affect other people. And we see here that it's happening that way. Elijah tells Ahab, you haven't just hurt yourself. You're hurting the entire nation. You're hurting the nation of Israel itself. You know, it's hard to hear. That's a very hard thing for a king to hear. Especially a king whom God has given victory after victory and shown himself to him over and over. So hard that it leads to this. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, those words, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth on his flesh. He fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly or meekly. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, <clears throat> I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. So I want you to think about this. Has Ahab humbled himself? This scripture, uh, as I studied for Ahab, was the scripture that I struggled with the most, that I wrestled with the most. Uh, I think it's that way for a reason. I think they want you to wrestle with this text. Ahab has seen what the Lord is capable of. Ahab has seen how God can pour out his wrath on people who are disobedient to him. And personally, I think Ahab is shaking in his boots. He's scared that God's wrath is about to be poured out on him. And he's doing anything and everything that he can to get out of that. He's seen what happened to the prophet. He has seen what happened to the prophets of Baal. He saw that firsthand. And he continues to call Elijah the troubler, 
because he wants to do things the way that he wants to do them. Completely opposite of how God has called him to do those things. So I will say this. So I don't want to take the scripture out of context. I think Ahab did humble himself. I think he's sorry for what he did. For what he did. So much so that God and Elijah are going to have this conversation about it, right? And because of the repentance of the, before the Lord, because he relents from pouring out his wrath upon Ahab himself, he says, you know what? I'm going to give him peace in these days. I'm going to pour out my wrath upon his sons down the line. But three years go by. Ahab has no war. Everything is going well. And Ahab gets comfortable. Pretty much like we saw with King Asa last week. I got this. I don't need the Lord. Everything's been pretty easy going. Why do I need God? And so this is my last point. Ahab is killed in battle. And let's see how this is going to unfold. Chapter 22, starting in verse 2. It says, But in the third year... Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So here's a map. okay? And so Jehoshaphat is going to come up to King Ahab. And he's going, listen, this land belongs to us. It belongs to our people. And the Syrians have it. And we need to go and take it back. Jehoshaphat, being the wise king that he is, says this. And I paraphrase. I ain't going into battle unless we talk to Yahweh about it. Unless we talk to the Lord about it. So what does Ahab do? Ahab brings in the 400 prophets. Probably the 400 prophets of Asherah. Uh, This is in verse 6. And Ahab asked these men... Shall we go up to battle against Ramoth Gilead or not? And the prophets all give them a man. This is the plan that you should do. This is exactly what you need to do. They give them a thumbs up. Verse 7. Jehoshaphat puts a pause on everything. He says, time out. He says, wait a minute. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? Because he realizes these guys are not prophets from the Lord. Of whom we may inquire. And so Ahab responds. Well there is one. His name's Micaiah. But I hate him. And not only do I hate him. is He always speaks evil against me. He never says anything nice about me. And I don't want to ask his opinion. But Jehoshaphat insists. And so Ahab calls him up. And then we have this showdown. Between uh, Zedekiah and Micaiah. And Zedekiah is going to make this um, horns of iron and says, We're going to go into battle and uh, we're going to have victory in battle. We'll be victorious. Uh, and he's, of course, I think this is just to show allegiance to his allegiance with Baal and the worship of Baal. And you can read in chapter 22 all about uh, the spiritual influences at work in this story. To talk about it all would have taken a, a lot of weeks here. But, uh, so you can read about that in chapter 22. But Ahab asked Micaiah straight to his face. Verse 15 says, Go up 
And Micaiah answers him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And then Ahab, not being a believing person about what Micaiah is saying to him. And I paraphrase. He says, do you swear to the Lord? Because I'm not real. How many times should I make you swear to the Lord that what you're telling me is the truth? That's pretty much what he says to him. Do you really swear? Do you swear? And Micaiah replies this. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, a sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And to say that this makes Ahab angry is an understatement. He arrests Micaiah. He puts him in prison. And he tells the people, do not let him out until I return home safely. So he's going to leave him there in prison and they go to war. Uh, Ahab's ways have not changed. Ahab's ways are not over. Out of all the times that God has tried to get his attention over and over again, he comes up with a plan for his own safety. And this is kind of one of the stories uh, that just dumbfounded me when I thought about, has he humbled himself? Let's see what he does here. He goes into battle with Jehoshaphat, and he's going to look at Jehoshaphat and say, hey, I got, I got a plan. I'm going to dress up like a normal old soldier, and I'm going to ride on the chariot, but you keep on all your kingly clothes, and we're, we'll go into battle. And Jehoshaphat, I don't know why, okay, and they're going to go into battle. So Jehoshaphat is dressed as the king. Ahab is dressed like a regular old soldier, and they go into battle. Now, the king of Syria also had very specific plans. And he says, here's what I want you guys to do. When we go into battle, if you see the king of Israel, I want you to turn all of your attention to kill him. Don't worry about the battle. We'll get back to that in a minute. I want you to kill the king of Israel. And so they see a king in battle. Guess who it is? It's Jehoshaphat. And after pursuing Jehoshaphat for a while, they realize that's not the king of Israel. So they turn around and come back. But let's do see what happens. Verse 34. Don't you wish you could know who this certain man is? But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between his scale armor and his breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around, carry me out of battle for I am wounded. And we know that Ahab is going to die right there on his chariot that very evening. And as they wash the blood out of his chariot, it says the dogs will come and lick the blood up. In reference and connection with his uh, not standing up or getting in the way of Naboth's murder for his vineyard. So... 22-year reign of Ahab, Uh, it's very much a roller coaster of God trying to get his attention. And over and over again, him ignoring those calls all the way through. So what do we learn from Ahab? What do we learn from his life? What do we learn from his reign as the king of Israel? Number one, we should seek and obey the Lord. This is not something that Ahab ever did. He wasn't bothered by what... God wanted him to do. He wasn't seeking Yahweh. uh, And he definitely wasn't concerned with obeying Yahweh. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.20 says, 
And this is of a king. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. You shall hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. His allegiance was to Baal. His allegiance was to Jezebel. And um, over and over again we see how he did not seek God. He did not care about uh, obeying the Lord. But we should seek and obey the Lord. Uh, so that we don't become Ahabs ourselves. Secondly, we should listen to godly advice. Over and over again, he had prophets sent to him. And over and over again, God's people spoke truth to him. And over and over again, he never listened. Unless they were saying, hey, God's going to hand this army into your hand. He was like, yes, I'm all for that. But he didn't listen to any of the other things. He didn't listen to godly advice. I think people are placed in our life sometimes in a season where we need to hear truth even when uh, we don't like it. Okay, And when those people show up, like the check engine light, we need to do something about it. That check engine light is there for a reason. We need to find the problem. We need to fix the problem. We don't need to ignore it. And I think godly people. And sometimes, guess what? You will not like the advice that some people give you. But if we know that it's godly advice, if we know that person loves the Lord, then maybe we should listen and take their advice in that moment. Uh, thirdly, we should be satisfied with what the Lord has given us. Ahab had everything in the world, and yet he wanted something else. He wanted the very thing that he didn't have. He wanted the very thing that Naboth was not willing to give him or sell to him. Uh, this, the world throws this at us all the time. We have to be satisfied with what God gives us. We can't be envious of what our neighbor has. We have to uh, be satisfied with what the Lord has given us. Fourthly, we should never overlook injustice in the world. I think this is something that Ahab did. Of course, we see Jezebel and Naboth and the injustice that was done on his behalf just to make him happy. Uh, I think in our world today, it's very easy to look around and see injustice. Also, I think it's very easy for us in our comfortable little bubbles to look at the injustice in the world and to do nothing about it. And I don't think we need to do nothing. I think we need to do something. Uh, at the very least, we can pray about it. If we see something that's wrong, make it a matter of prayer. And if God gives us the ability to take action against that, I think we should take action against injustice that we see in the world. We need to do something. It's not an option for us as Christ followers to do nothing. And lastly, and this is, uh, you hear this every week, sin always has consequences. You know, in thinking about injustice and in thinking about consequences, the greatest act of injustice that the world has ever seen was done to Jesus who stepped out of heaven, who stepped into this world, who uh, lived the life that we couldn't, who died the death that we deserve, who drank the cup of the wrath from the Father for us. Our sin has consequences, and it was poured out on Jesus at the cross and ultimately showing how his death uh, can give us life. So when we think about our sin having consequences, when we think about injustice, the greatest picture of that is God's son, Jesus, dying in our place. Uh, lastly, I just want to leave you with this thought. Um, I actually added this yesterday. 
in, in reading through the Gospels yesterday, uh, thinking about Judas. And it was very um, eye-opening to see the comparisons between Ahab and Judas. When you think about Ahab and how God continued to reveal himself, uh, Judas walked with Jesus. He saw him and all the amazing things that he could do in the healing and the turning water into wine and the raising people uh, from the dead. Judas saw those things and his heart was hard. Both of these men saw what God could do. Both of these men were filled with greed to the point that they would do anything for it. They would betray someone to get what they wanted. Both of these men were sorry towards the end of their lives. They were sorry for what they were going through. They were sorry for the sin that they had committed. But both having very gross endings. You know, I see these comparisons between Ahab and Judas, and it just made me think that uh, I hope that as we learn these lessons from King Ahab, that we seek and obey the Lord, that we listen to godly advice, that we're satisfied with what the Lord has given us. God reveals himself to us still. And I hope we will listen and I hope we don't close ourselves off to what God has for us and, and the message that he has for us to hear and how we should obey him in this world. So that's a little bit about Ahab. Let's pray and we'll be done.